Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Cigar Social Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for joining. Today we have a very, very special guest to celebrate the 20th episode of the Cigar Social. Uh, this man is a cigar industry legend. Uh, it's no secret he is a no-nonsense, tell-it-like-it-is kind of guy. He's a master of tobacco cultivation and cigar production. Uh, he has previously served as the president and CEO of Drew Estate, not just a cigar mogul. He is a man of many passions. Uh, I believe he is an avid supporter of animal rescue and has a love for craft beer and single malt whiskey. Uh, he also enjoys fishing and enjoying uh, the great outdoors, maybe long walks on the beach for all I know. He is a true industry leader with about 30 years of industry experience, and he has pretty much done it all, starting with pioneering the cigar blog and review community and worked to become the master blender and has crafted some of the best cigars while using only the best tobaccos on the planet with zero compromise. Folks, the founder and CEO of Dunbarton Tobacco and Trust, the Saka Squatch, Steve Saka. Thanks for joining us, Steve. Hey, my pleasure. Couple quick edits there. Um, I don't know if I put me in the master category on cultivation. Uh, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I know more than most, but I don't think I fit in that category. And uh, I'm not a big fan of craft beer, so that's uh, not a beer guy. Well, I will have to go correct Google. Eh, don't worry about it. You can't correct Google. Are you kidding me? Yeah. <laughs> Before we get into the q and like I'd like to talk about today's bottle and stick real quick, uh, starting with the Stogie. So today I am smoking the Sin Compromiso Selection number five. This is a medium strength 6x54 Toro, uh, ex exquisitely crafted by my guest here, Steve Saka, made by the Hoya Nicaragua. Uh, factory, the Sin Compromiso, sports a Mexican San Andreas wrapper that is expertly draped over an Ecuadorian Habano binder and houses the Nicaraguan filler to create the medium to full-bodied smoke. The Sin Compromiso flavor profile has a phenomenal notes of cocoa, espresso, and even chicory root. Uh, MSRP for out this outstanding smoke is around $17.50 or so, depending on where you get it. If you're listening, and if you have not tried this, I've this is a very strong recommendation from my end here. Uh, and we'll dive more into the Sin Compromiso in a little bit. Steve, what are you smoking over there? Um, I'm smoking uh, Mike Rita Black, Saka Khan. It's a Saturday. Mm. I got nothing. I got time to kill. So I can, I can spend uh, two plus hours smoking a cigar. That's a phenomenal smoke as well. I mean, I think everything from Dunbarton is, but we'll get into that a little bit later. Now on to the drink, starting with you, Steve. Uh, are you sipping anything over there? And where exactly is over there? Well, over here is at uh, my home in New Hampshire. And I'm currently not sipping anything because uh, I'm, on a, I'm on a little bit of a dose of, uh, what is it called? Antibiotics. So I'm not allowed to have any alcohol for another day. Damn. All right. Well, I'll have one for you. It is what it is. You got to behave myself so yes please tip back <laughs> well i have something simple yet delicious this is not a, this is not to take away from the smoking experience of the sin compromiso i have the uncle nearest straight rye whiskey like mentioned it's a very simple rye with no bells and whistles uh solid body uh it's a, it's a great bottle to keep at the stock the home bar 100 percent rye 
age at least four years, price around 50 bucks. And I'll be diving more into the Uncle Nearest story in my next, or in my next episode in two weeks. Um, but just to let you know, Uncle Nearest is actually the guy who taught Jack Daniels how to distill. Phenomenal story. So, folks, if you're listening, stay tuned for that episode. Enough of that. Let's get to talk about Steve Saka and Dunbarton. Steve, thanks again for taking the time. I want to dive into a few of those bullet points uh, in the intro. Sure. Yeah. What's up? I have a question. How is the burn on the rye? Because for me, I'm not much of a rye guy because I find most of them too peppery. So how's the pepper level on that rye? Steve, I, I'm exactly the same way. I am not traditionally a rye guy. I'm a bourbon fan to 100%. I've had a couple of guests on the show who have brought rye. And I found that when it's 100% rye, the burn kind of goes to like a slight warm. It's not overpowering. Um, but when you start oh. going into a mash bill or things of that nature, you start to capture some some more heat, some more pepper. Um, this, again, smooth, solid, but a warming. Not not a lot of burn to it at all. Yeah. Um, we had one. Interesting. Lo- no, I didn't know that. Yeah. A local distillery came on, uh, and they did the same thing. They, they brought me a, a five different bottles, and we went through it. And we, they had a bottled in bond rye. They had a regular rye, both 100% rye. And I looked at the guy, and I'm like, dude, I'm not, I'm not a, a rye guy. This is really good. And so since then, I've been seeing a trend. So I've been trying different ryes when I get a chance. And this one uh, caught my eye because I'm a fan of their bourbon and doesn't disappoint. But Steve, starting with the, uh, the Internet business uh, you created, uh, Cigar Nexus, which could be considered one of the first ever cigar blog sites back in 1996, I believe, that paved the way for blog and review sites that exist now, like Cigar Aficionado, Half Wheel, Cigar Snob, so on. Um, recently, I watched uh, you make a video that actually rebuttaled and critiqued a cigar review from Tim Swanson uh, at Cigars Daily. Uh, have you ever considered getting back into the blog and review content, especially now with your level of uh, experience in the network that you've created throughout the industry? Well, I think herein lies the problem with that. Look, I'm I'm in the industry. So you can't be a critic of the industry in that kind of way, critical of other people's products and brands, um, and also be in the industry. There's kind of almost a, it's just an unwritten courtesy, right, that you don't do that. And the other thing, too, is it's such a small business that, um, look, we all deal with a lot of the same people as far as vendors and growers and suppliers. And so you try, I mean, if you're smart, you you try to not really engage in those conversations. It's one thing for like, you know, like I'll I'll say to people, I think Opus X is a great cigar, phenomenally well-made, wonderful materials. It just doesn't happen to suit my palate. When I'm smoking a Fuente, I'd much rather smoke a Don Carlos, or I'd rather smoke an Aneo. But that has nothing to do with the cigar. Hello? It has to do with what I like more than what I don't like in cigar blends, right? So I, I don't, I don't really see how I could do an effective review site if I was shackled with just this general common courtesy that you have to have. Because I mean, if you start getting into that, I mean, look. I mean, the reality is most cigar makers, brand owners, 
think theirs are the best and everyone else is a shit is a general rule of thumb, right? And they have a few exceptions here and there. They go, oh, well, I like this guy. I don't like that guy. But it's, it's, it's really, there's just, there's just no room for it. So the only way it could ever happen again is when I'm no longer actually in the business making cigars and selling cigars and, you know, promoting my own brands. That, that, that's my opinion. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it would be, uh, it'd be wildly entertaining. I can tell you that because I, <laughs> I have a much different take than most people on a lot of different issues when it comes to cigars. Quick follow-up to that. Have you seen the latest video from Tim? The, uh, the, the battle of Sin Compromiso versus the Paladin de Saca. And if so, Will there be a rebuttal video to that as well? Um, a, I haven't. Look, that's the other thing too. Is look, I, I'm swamped, man. It's crazy. I, I, you'd think I would see everything, but I don't. Um, so I haven't seen it. Uh, maybe there would be. Look, I don't know what he said in it. And I love Tim. Tim's a great guy and he's a great customer. Yeah. But part of what Tim does is. Obviously, look, you're, you're trying to capture attention, right? Because that's what's good for, you know, your interaction with your consumers and your customers and whatnot. So I have a feeling that he probably said some things in there with the intention of getting baiting me, hoping that I'll bite again because it provides even more, um, you know, fodder for him to use which in the end helps me too, right? Because uh, my customers that shop through him, you know, hopefully they'll buy cigars from him or customers who buy from him but don't currently buy my cigars may go, oh, well, I'll check those cigars out. That being said, I'm going to watch it. I have, um, I'm on the docket to see Tim. Oh, I don't know. I'm doing his, we always do one of the monthly sponsorships with him. And it involves, and I know you do a podcast with him. So I think that's like at the end of March or April. So if there's something really in there, um, I'm sure I'll talk about it then. Um, yeah. Maybe if I watch and there's something that really tweaks me, I'll, I'll bring it up. But nah, he, he's, got to, no, he's got enough free love. And that's the other thing, too, you got to be really careful as. As a manufacturer and a brand owner, I can't really focus too much on any one retailer either. Because every retailer gets upset whenever you do anything with another retailer. Because as far as they're concerned, you're taking money out of their pocket. And playing favorites. The way it tends to work, though, is yeah, the retailers who are more proactive and create more content and do more, well, then obviously I'm going to engage with them more. Like, I, I had some douchebag of a retailer write me one day, why don't, you know, why are you sharing photos from this guy's shop? Right? Well, the guy took a really good photo of one of my cigars. I thought it was really nice. So, hey, I shared the photo, and I said, courtesy of such and such. Really good shop in so-and-so. And he is a really good shop. And the guy who was complaining at me, I'm like, well, let me ask you this. When was the last time you posted a good photo of my product? Or when have you ever posted a photo of my product? So why are you bitching at me that I'm sharing this guy's great photo when you don't create any photos or do anything yourself? Create a great photo, and hey, Bob, I'll be happy to share your photo too. And so it's kind of weird, but you have to be careful. And look, I've been running into it like this last year, particularly with Abe at Smoke In, 
Abe does a lot that's Dunbarton-centric lately. Um, but that's not me. That's him. Um, the product's doing exceptionally well for him. So any good retailer just beats that horse until the horse collapses. But, I mean, he he, he funds almost all of that stuff, you yeah. know? And, you know, I, I'm not the one that made special Christmas stickers. I'm not the one that made Sokka Squatch towels or cutters or any of that crap. He did all that on his own dime. There's nothing oh. that prevents a retailer from doing that. Yeah. So your blog days helped facilitate the uh, relationships with uh, business and company owners, most notably Lou Rothman, who at the time owned JR Cigars, which is where you went next. Uh, with that cigar ex uh, retail experience and, uh, under your belt, knowing how that side of the industry operates, is there a possibility of a Dunbarton and brick-and-mortar or shop or lounge in the, in the works or in the future? Um, look, I've learned long, long ago to never say never. Um, I don't currently have an interest in operating a cigar store or a lounge or even a retail website. Um, I, I have a hard, and it's kind of funny because almost all the big people do it already. Um, you know, Davidoff has a direct site. I mean, STG owns Cigars International. Altidus owns JR Cigar. So they all do it, but look, I'm still in that young phase. You're trying to build your brand. You really do need that brick and mortar retail support to help spread the gospel because no, how many are, no matter how many people I talk to through a medium like this, it's not the same as that day in, day out personal interaction that that retailer has with the consumer that comes to their shop. Because most cigar consumers, they don't, even though more today are consuming this type of media, the vast majority still don't. Their only point of contact is with the person who they actually purchase cigars from. Now, as generations get younger, um, you see more of them being, you know, direct shopper, online shoppers, and they're gravitating towards the smoke-ins and the Coronas and the cigar dailies and the small batch. So they're having much more influence than before. I can see a future where maybe if the company became large enough, uh, would we choose to have maybe a factory store? Um, but we would do that not with the intent of undercutting our, our retailers' prices. We'd actually make the prices higher, significantly so in the store. It would be more so just to provide some place for your loyal customers who really love your brand to just come and say, hey, you know, you know how it is. You know, yep. If you're traveling in the area, you like to check stuff out. But to even entertain that idea, that's like 10 years too premature right now. I'm I'm so in the weeds just trying to do what I'm supposed to be doing. I don't have any dreams of doing any extra nonsense at this point. So short answer is no. The honest answer is who the hell knows. And the other <laughs> thing you just don't know is you don't know what ultimately is going to happen with regulation, right? Yeah, you don't know how are cigars going to be allowed to be sold or legally distributed and you know, like I have a situation in California right now. I have very few California retailers, very few, tiny amount. Uh, they consume a lot of cigars in California. Why? Because I don't engage in the tax dog and pony game that you have to in California. It's just kind of this double dip wholesale distribution license, you know, sell to yourself at a lower price. So you pay a lower tax so that you can then sell to the retailer. 
um, and I choose not to do it. And as a result, it makes my cigars, even though California prices are crazy, it makes my cigars even 30% more crazy, okay, because I don't do this, okay? But my attitude is, listen, I don't have any sales representation in the vast majority of the country. Like, I have nowhere where in Chicago, right? I, I have nobody in the Midwest at all. I have retailers that I deal with direct. But, I mean, there's so many places that we still need to develop as a company that why am I going to worry about the one that's got this crazy tax structure that's literally the furthest territory from where we're physically located? Geographically, know, the furthest California point. Retailers <laughs> hate to hear that. Right. Yeah. California consumers hate to hear that, but – I also know that most like really hardcore cigar guys that live in the state of California that are the types of consumers that really are the ones that are probably going to be the ones that are going to consume my products. Uh, they're primarily mail order buyers already, right? They're online buyers because they don't want to pay the crazy taxes either. So it is what yeah. it is. And, uh, you know, you just uh, you can't do everything. You got to. You got to pick which battles you can fight currently and push some things off to the future. Speaking of Altidus, uh, when Altidus brought, bought JR, it brought you to Drew Estates where you were the president mm -hmm. and then ultimately the CEO. Uh, <clears throat> this is where you oversaw the, all the faucets of the business, including product development, execution, and uh, the operations. Most notably, uh, I believe you created the amazing Liga Pravada series. Can you explain how that, that Liga Pravada concept came to be? Well, it's pretty simple. I found myself to be president of a cigar company that didn't make a cigar that I was willing to smoke. That's kind of embarrassing if you think about it. So uh, Liga Pravada, simple Spanish phrase, means just personal blend. And that's the way Liga Bravada began, was just a cigar that was being crafted just so I had something in my pocket that I could pull out and say, yeah, we make this at Drew Estate. This is a cigar that I smoke. And that's that's where Liga Bravada got its start, was just from that humble beginning. And even when we first started making it for retail sales, I mean, there were so few. We, I mean, at Comulate Drew Estate, we had probably 1,500 accounts on direct. We opened with like, 30 accounts for Liga Pravada. We opened with wow. one size. It was just a Toro, a six by 52 and a double wide 50 count box. I mean, it was uh, it was really, really small in the beginning. And Liga production, even when I left Drew Estate, I mean, at that point, it had become a big deal in the company's portfolio from a, um, from a stature point of view, um, because I think it really helped to reframe a way a lot of consumers looked at Drew Estate because prior to Liga, for most consumers, Drew Estate was just a wacky tobacco company. And you either loved the product or you hated the product. And I think Liga Pravada, and it's not like they hadn't tried to get into traditional cigars before, but you know, for them, there was a learning curve. And that was part of the reason why when I came into the company, that was part of one of the tasks that I was given was to get the company to a stage where we could make a traditional cigar that could be competitive with the rest of the marketplace and to, you know, enter into that traditional arena of cigar making. And uh, I think that Liga Pravada, I think Liga Pravada, I think Liga Pravada was so successful for three reasons. One, I think because it was actually a really good cigar. That helps. 
Um, I think well, there's probably multiple reasons. Second reason is the branding's really strong. There's really strong, strong branding. Um, wish I had kept that one in my back pocket, but too late now. Um, and then, uh, and then the other thing too, is I think for a lot of consumers, when they smoked it, they were like genuinely stunned, right? They're like, what? This was made by who? Drew Estate? Right. The acid guys? Real? No, this can't be. Exactly. You know I mean? It was, yep. it was almost like earth shattering. It was so, it was so unexpected that, you know, because I mean, seriously, the bar wasn't here. The bar was like there, you know what I mean? And the fact that we cleared something like this, it was just almost like mind blowing for a lot of consumers. And, yep. uh, and it really, and then the fourth thing that I think obviously helped it was the, the shortage. I mean, we didn't have the capacity to make it because we didn't have the tobaccos. I mean, we were, we were basically going from the ground up because, you know, one of the things about being in the, infused side of the business uh you don't need the same type of materials it's not that you have bad materials but you need an awful lot of just milder materials you know what i mean yeah. so that you can infuse them and they take on the flavor so you're really focusing on making almost kind of neutral cigars in a way you know what i mean so that they you want the tobacco to be good you want it to be clean tasting it you don't want it to be bitter you want all those things but you're essentially making nothing but you know millions and millions of mild mild cigars as the yeah. base on which you then do all the infusion process so drew at that time they didn't have the infrastructure they didn't have the tobacco they didn't have the they didn't have the experience fermenting those heavier tobaccos or even buying those heavier tobaccos you know what i mean so it, it took a while to to ramp it up and even at the point that i left the company at that point, it had become like a real brand, um, but it's nowhere near what it is today. I mean, today, they're easily selling probably six or seven-fold volume-wise of what we were selling when I left Drew Estate. Yeah, I mean, they're, yeah, Drew as a company is, is a, you know, a, a bulldozer in an industry with, with what the sales, from the sales side. Um, after leaving Drew, you yeah. went off and created no, they're, they're major, Tobacco and Trust. They're a major player, period. What inspired you to just create your own business and brand? I don't know if you're having a problem with me, but you're locking up on my end. This that uh, a little bit, yeah. I I, I it as well. Did you get that get that last question? I did not. You were completely frozen for that one. After leaving Drew, uh, you went off and created Dunbarton Tobacco and Trust in 2015. What inspired you to create your own business and brand? So, a couple different things. I mean, the first one was I had had the experience at Drew, and even though I was president and CEO, I was a partner, and I was a minority partner. So I had a lot of battle royales with my partners on a continual basis. I mean, there were a lot of decisions that I would want to go one way and they would want to go another way. And most of the time I would convince them to go the way I thought was in their best interest, but it was still really a battle sometimes to do that. And it was really quite grueling and exhausting. Um, the second thing is, they wanted to get into a lot of things that I didn't want to get into. 
They wanted to get into snus and they wanted to get into cigarettes and they wanted to get into mass market. And I'm not saying those are all bad things. It just isn't a business that I'm interested in, nor is it one that I know anything significant about that I would really be a, a value add uh, as the president or CEO of the company, right? I, I would be a hindrance. I'd be, I'd be OJTing that. Um, and uh, the other thing too was, look, Florida wasn't working for my family. I mean, I, I think Florida is a place that you go and visit on vacation. Um, you know, particularly South Florida, the Miami area. And, you know, no offense to people that love it there. It just, it isn't my cup of tea. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a New England schlubby guy. I would, I'd have to lose a hundred pounds to be fat in Miami, basically. You know, <laughs> so I it just, it just wasn't, it wasn't a good fit. And, um, and the other thing too is, um, you know, it's just, I was getting to the point where, well, if I was ever going to do it, I was running out of years to do it. I mean, I would argue that even starting it at the age of 50 was too late. Um, I almost wish I had skipped the whole Drew experience in some ways, you know, from a timetable point of view, not from an experience point of view. I mean, I, I learned a lot while I was at Drew. There's no doubt about it. And we all learned together, you know what I mean? So it wasn't like I was being taught by them, but there was a lot, there was a lot to be learned, you know, in that experience at Drew Estate. And, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, uh, at some point you have to basically say, okay, because there's only so many years left in your life and, uh, starting a new company as a bootstrap startup. That's, that really is the territory of the young man. Um, I would argue that me doing it 50 was rather foolish. My wife would still argue that it was a foolish thing for us to do, um, you know, because, you know, why? And particularly given the result that I had already been bought out multiple times, you're then just making, taking a risk with what your long-term future is. So, but yeah, I, uh, but I always, I always wanted to, I always wanted to just do things a hundred percent my way in the cigar business. And uh, so without any fights and without any bankers and without a cadre of attorneys and all that nonsense. And I mean, I mean, the other thing too is just it was endless meetings at Drew Estate. We, we never have meetings, like literally like, like my vice president of sales, Lafferty, there'll be times I don't talk to him for four weeks. You know what I mean? Much less have a formal meeting. I like literally don't talk to him. Perfect. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I, I don't need to. Yeah. You know yep. what I mean? I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not worried about it. So it, it's, it's much, much different. And the other thing, too, is, you know, doing it this way, it lets me grow organically. It doesn't put any, I mean, any pressure that I have is self-imposed pressures. You know what I mean? And that's, uh, look, there's yeah. a lot because I bite off more than I should. But I'm choosing to bite those off. And uh, so, yeah. And I, I think just, that uh, from, I from a consumer standpoint, where... yeah, from a consumer standpoint, I feel that that was a good move. <laughs> These cigars are phenomenal. I have a, a, an array here. I'm smoking the Sin Compromiso. Uh, I had the Muesha de Saka de Bewitched. Uh, when I was down in Tennessee with my father-in-law, we, we tried it together. Um, and the, 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 the product... The cigars are just above and beyond, uh, you know, 
from most, from my standpoint, personal experience, above and beyond most uh, retailers and what you can grab at your local brick and mortar. Uh, I understand Dunbarton stems from a, a town in New Hampshire, but why the Tobacco and Trust part in the name of the company? You're, you're okay. Well, Dunbarton because Dunbarton is. I live in Dunbarton, New Hampshire. Um, Dunbarton alone isn't good um, because it's so you had to get cigars or tobacco in it, um, and the intent was that I was going to go something, but Right at the very beginning, I thought I was going to be buying a bank building. There was an old bank building that I thought I was going to purchase, and we were going to originally put the company in, and I thought it was yeah. a done deal. Um, so I incorporated the name, uh, Dunbarton Tobacco and Trust. I thought it had a cool ring to it. Going to have Absolutely. a bank building, boom, 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 nice and nice. But turns out that the guy that actually owned the building – the price he was advertising it for was not the price he really wanted. The price he really wanted was almost double of what he was actually putting it on the market for. So the negotiations on the property fell apart, but it was too late. The company had already been incorporated. So I now have Dunbarton Tobacco and Trust. So I guess you, you get a free toaster with every box of cigars or something. I don't know. I mean, someday, I mean, it's uh, it's, it was, it was, it wasn't intentional. I mean, it was intentional, but, not the way it ended up. And I got to tell you, terribly long name to do for email addresses and to put on a shirt or anything like that. It's a, it's a, it's a problematic name, to be honest with you. I, uh, in, in retrospect, I probably should have gone. That's why you'll, you'll often see me just abbreviate as DTT. I tend to well, put an yeah, acronym the, on everything. The logo on the, uh, the coffee cup uh, and that I have and the, the logo that you see is that, that nice DTT logo, which is, which is really cool. Uh, <clears throat> I've noticed you have a, a warranty logo that is very intriguing and beautifully drawn. Translated in English, it reads, this warranty seal uh, assures to the buyer that the contents inside are handmade cigars of the absolute best quality. And it, it, again, the, the, the logo itself is, is phenomenal. Uh, is there any other significance within that image that people may not know about? Yeah, there's some Easter eggs, but I'm not going to tell you what the Easter eggs are, because that would ruin it. Okay. Uh, Follow-up question, and this comes from a, a friend of mine who is part of the, the cigar club that I'm a part of. Uh, where can someone get their hands on one of those beautiful glass crystal ashtrays with the warranty logo? Because those are uh, a hot commodity, and I don't think where, – where, are they still available? They haven't been made available yet. So, um, so far, I think maybe there's 20 or so of them out in the wild. And everybody that has one won them as a result of a raffle or a contest. Um, there's currently no mechanism to buy one at all. I, I haven't actually figured out what I'm going to do with those crystal ashtrays yet. It was a, It was kind of a project that went awry. It was something that they were supposed to cost a quarter of what they ended up costing took over three years to do three different manufacturers. It's still not done. The, the packaging on them still messed up and I'm waiting now for custom cut foam inserts to put in the damn boxes because it pisses me off that the manufacturer just took cut up pieces of foam and jammed it around the edge. I'm like, are you kidding me? This thing costs so damn much. We can't put a nice piece <laughs> in the box to showcase the ashtray. So 
it's just, it was one of these projects that, see, whenever you do any of these overseas projects, particularly in Asia, you have to give them so much money in advance for them to proceed and your money's just gone. And what I should have done is I should have just abandoned the deposit and went on my merry way because I would have saved myself so much money and so much grief. But sometimes you cut your nose to spite your face and you just kind of like that sunk costing and just keep bullying through. And, and that's what I did. And uh, so now I have these really extremely expensive glass ashtrays that it's really hard to figure out what to do with them. I'm not in the accessory business. Even if I was in the accessory business, stupid glass ashtray would be like $300 retail. Okay. Wow. Because of how much it ended up ultimately costing to make. Uh, you can't afford to give it away with a purchase. You know yeah. what I mean? There's no physical way for that to work. So, but I'll figure, I think I'm just going to keep for now. I'll just keep using them for promos and raffle prizes. And, you know, Hey, when, you know, I do an event at a store, we'll put one there as a, one of the big prizes to get. I, I don't, I haven't figured out what I'm doing with them yet. I've just been okay. randomly using them um, here and there, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, it, 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 those are a tough one, man. I just, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> project did not go the way I thought the project was going to go. And it certainly didn't end up costing what I thought it was going to cost. So in the cigar industry, you're referred to as the Saka Squatch. And I have the statue here. Uh, and I see that you accept mm -hmm. the name and you use it in promotions. It, it's, but, but where does that nickname stem from? Where did that come from? So it was a nickname that I was given at a small retail shop in northern Jersey. Um, when I worked at uh, JR, um, corporate headquarters was in Whippany, New Jersey, and I never moved to New Jersey, um, you know, because I would do a lot of travel. But when I was in the States, I would then go down and spend my, you know, Monday through Thursday or Monday through Friday at the corporate offices. I had a corporate condo and I go into work and then I would basically Friday around three o'clock, I cut out and drive back to New Hampshire. I can't drive without smoking a cigar. It's like a seatbelt for me, right? It's mandatory. <laughs> Got in the car, I'm smoking a cigar. And then like 40 minutes in, I'm like, oh, damn, I forgot my cigars on the desk. So now do I turn around and go back and get them? Am I going to drive the next six hours with no cigars? I'd rather shoot myself. So I do what everybody does. You look on your phone and you figure out where the nearest cigar store is and you... And you walk in and I went in there with the intent of buying a few cigars to get me through the trip. And when I walked to the door, the retailer just looked up and he goes, oh, my God, Steve Saka in my cigar shop. It's like seeing a Sasquatch. And uh, <laughs> bought some cigars and I ended up sitting there and smoking and talking to his regulars. And then it kind of became a habit that eh, once a month, you know, on my way back, I would stop at his shop and hang out with his regulars and smoke a Robusto. And they just started calling me Saka Squatch in the store. And uh, so that's where, that's where it came from. Well, that's stuck. <laughs> have you, uh, you have a I few really cigars. Stuck. I never, I never really promoted the name before. It was just in that one shop, right? 
Um, but I started using it for the company because of the FDA regulation. Um, you know, we were, we were, the way the FDA regulation was going down was you couldn't have anything that was a branded product. So you notice that the Saka squatches don't say Dunbarton Tobacco and Trust on them. They don't yeah. say anything about one of my cigar brands on them. It's just a Saka squatch. And you also notice I don't have a cigar called Saka squatch. Okay. Because the way the FDA regs were going, I would have had to put, I would have had to cover 30% of that little monkey in warning label. You know what I mean? So it, it was a little bit of a strategic thing on my part to have this kind of tongue in cheek icon for the company that really was unlikely to be as regulated as heavily as some of the other products. Um, you know, so that's a hard thing to do, right? Because you don't know whether consumers are going to pick it up and identify with it, but look, people like Sasquatches. They're cool. Right. And then uh, the stupid the, the little statue is awesome. Statue. Right. And it's look, the, it's just yeah. as worthless as any other piece of cigar swag, yeah. but it's different than any other piece of cigar swag. Right. It, it looks yeah. good on a shelf. It's uh you know, it's good in a guy's office and whatnot. And uh, it makes for great photos. And, uh, so it's worked out really, really well for us. So you have a few cigars and Vitolas that have interesting names. Uh, and most, uh, most of them, have, some of them have acronyms. For example, you have the STFU, you have the H-O-A-D-U. Right. And uh, recently, there's been some buzz on one called A. Can you explain where the N-L-M-T-H-A <laughs> came to be? And I know what it means, but can you tell the, the listeners what that means and, and where that came from. Yeah, well, it's, it stands for now, leave me the hell alone. Um, listen, one of the things that when you're in the cigar business, you are constantly being told by consumers what you should do and what they want, endlessly, ceaselessly. And some of the most rabid ones are the Lancero guys. The Lancero guys are like literally like rabid dogs. They just, they bark and they yip and they yap. They never, ever stop. And look, I understand if you're a consumer out there and you like Lanceros, good for you. But the reality is the market doesn't. The retailers don't. The market doesn't. They do not sell. If they sold, everybody would make a bazillion Lanceros and you would see tons of options on the shelf. There's a reason they're not there. And part of it is the Lancero consumers in themselves. So even the guys that really like Lanceros, they're always chasing the next Lancero. So it isn't like, oh, like the guy that smokes Robusos or Toros, he has four, five, six that are his favorites, and he's, they're always in his rotation, right? No, the Lancero guys, they buy a whole box of whatever the newest, latest, greatest Lancero is, smoke one or two out of the box, they put it up in their Lancero shrine, and then they spend the next decade talking about what a fucking great cigar it was to never buy another box of it ever again. <laughs> because they're on to buying the next Lancero. So Lancero is just, it's really just this petty little marketing thing at best, okay? The number of successful Lanceros in the marketplace is so, so rare that lives beyond the, hey, they made a Lancero and they sell a couple hundred boxes initially and then it just dies. Oddly enough, the Now Leave Me Hell Alone is amazing that I keep selling so many of them but even still, 
It doesn't sell as much as any of the Muestra de Sacas. It's a great Lancero, but I made it and I said, hey, here I made it. You guys have been bugging me. Here it is. Now leave me the hell alone. Bam. It's done. It's over. And, and that's where it comes from. My job is to make cigars that people want to buy and will smoke. You know what I mean? That's what the retailers want. Look, it's hard to convince retailers today to take anything but Toros, Robustos, and Gordos. Yeah. Those three formats, they're 85% of the sales. Everything else, Coronas, Perfectos, Torpedoes, you know, Churchills, uh, Lonsdales, all that other stuff added together is 15% of the market. You know what I mean? So it's really hard for a retailer to waste the space on a Lancero. Now, they'll do it occasionally because they also have Lancero geeks. But again, they're very rarely going to keep stocking the same Lancero because their Lancero geeks want the next Lancero. Or you have those very few shops, and there's some out there. There's Stogies in Houston. It's very uh, Lancero-centric. They have a wide array of Lanceros. Uh, there's Embargo Cigars out in Phoenix. Um, they're really heavily focused in Lanceros. But you can't have a line of cigars based on four or five shops nationwide that are Lancero-centric. You know what I mean? So yeah. uh, to me, it's uh, Lanceros are an exercise in masturbation. They're, they're good for an initial sale. And, and that being said, look, I'm going to dis- – right now, I'm not making the now leave me hell alone any longer. I still have some more to sell, and they're all going to sell. But I have to make space in the portfolio because, you know, we've introduced – every year, for the most part, we introduce a new Moestra. The retailers are not going to give me 10 different spaces on their shelves for all of my Moestras. So I have to decide which – child to kick off the island and for me it's easy i'm going to kick the lancero off the island because it's the one that's the least popular with most of my retailers and uh because i got to make room because we're going to launch uh, krakatoa this year so you had bewitched the year before you had unstolen valor before that yada 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 so i can see a future where i might make a batch of lanceros um you know because I know in a short batch, it's something that works, but it's just not top of mind right now. It's definitely not a 2023 con, you know, thing. It's 2024, 2025, and maybe 2032. I don't know. It's the, when I get there, I get there. Because part of the problem is I'm not a fan of the blend, of Lanceros, period, which is another issue. I, I just don't like them. I, right. I, they can wax as poetic as they want about it, but blending Lanceros is not hard. Because Lanceros are very simple. There's nothing that you can do with the with the blend. There's nothing you can do with the positioning. There's no additional bunching techniques. It's a very simplistic thing to do. So it's basically A with B, B with C, C with D, A with D, B with D. It's like, and then eventually you're like, okay, this tastes good enough. Bam, here it goes. So it's not really all the buzz and nonsense is really just nonsense. You know, it really is. Uh, the only yeah. thing that's difficult about a Lancero is to not get them tight. And the reason they end up tight is because the Bonchero during the turn in the press tends to have a tendency to twist the bunch when he's doing the rotation. If you solve that one problem, you solve the draw problem on the vast majority of Lanceros. So it's just an attention to detail thing. Yeah, it's an extra step. But if you're doing what you're supposed to do, Making a Lancero that draws is not exactly rocket science. So the whole the whole 
the whole mythology around Lanceros is just such nonsense, in my opinion. I don't think they're particularly complex. I don't think they're particularly enjoyable to smoke. I don't think that they are, I, I've never made a Lancero that I couldn't make better as a Lonsdale. Okay. I understand yeah. the appeal of narrow ring gauges, but I mean, you can definitely add more depth and more richness and more complexity when you bump it up to a 43, 44 kind of ring gauge. Um, and the other thing too is I don't, I don't like to smoke cigar. I don't tend to like to smoke Gordos. I don't smoke cigars that make me feel like a gay porn star. And I don't tend to like cigars <laughs> that make me feel like a pedophile. So there you go. So yeah. yeah, for me, yeah, no, no, no love, no, no, no real love for the Lancero. And I, and I know it drives the Lancero guys crazy, but guess what? There's tons of people out there that'll make you a Lancero. So go, go, go beat on them, you know? Yeah. Onto the cigar that I'm smoking right now. And honestly, it is my probably in my personal opinion so far my personal favorite out of the line they're all great but my personal opinion the sin compromiso uh you use a very interesting method i believe to harvest the tobacco with the sin compromiso called the contivo tanto which is a japanese method to grow the royal crown musk melons why did you go with that method and what is that process and and uh, what are the effects and benefits of utilizing that method? Well, it's it's really it's nothing nothing original if you think about it. I mean, it's what all the weed guys do, right? You, it's what any good farmer does. You basically look. Farmers get paid for weight of their crops, so they want to get as much weight as possible. That is the way that they make money. They don't necessarily get paid. They get paid for the quality of their crop, but you make more money on the weight of the crop than the quality of the crop because there's always somebody that's going to want the lesser quality, okay, and is going to be willing to pay the appropriate price for it. So basically the whole Royal Crown Musk Melon thing is uh, they have these weird melons that they sell in Japan that used to be only grown for the royalty and or for the emperor. And basically, a, a musk melon stock would support like 20 to 22 fruit. And what they would do is they would basically pluck all the blossoms off and only leave two. So you had this entire root structure and vine structure that was just supporting two fruit. And then they would let those two fruits start to develop. And then they would basically say, okay, you're the better fruit than this fruit. And then they would pick off the lesser of the fruit and throw that away. So you'd have this one entire vine. Okay, that would require like literally, you know, a 10 by 10 plot of land growing just one stupid melon. Right. And they had a lot of other Japanese things where they rub it and they sing to it and yada, yada, yada. But that's that's just I can't don't even get me into that. But the intent was what ends up happening is this melon just the flesh of it ends up being sweeter. It ends up being more juicy. It ends up being more tender, which makes sense because you have this entire root structure that's designed to support the livelihood of 20 melons now only having to support one melon so all that right. energy gets focused into making the one melon perfect um so basically i wanted to apply that technique to tobacco so what we end up doing on the cultivo tanto crop is it's a it's a san andreas negro seed so it's a mexican capa seed um it's slightly hybridized but it's not anything that's like wildly unique 
it's unique to the one farmer, but it's not crazy. Um, but what we do is as the tobacco begins to leaf out, we start to pull the leaves right from the beginning and throw them on the ground. Well, we actually pick them up because we don't want them rotting there. Um, and, uh, and we only allow the top half of the leaves to come to maturity. And as a result, what ends up happening is, A, you're not cutting your crop weight in half. You're really cutting your crop rate down by two thirds because the top half of the plant is nowhere near as heavy as the bottom half. The leaves are right. much bigger on the bottom half. The other thing that you're doing is you're dramatically increasing your labor because as soon as you start to prune, pick these leaves off, you start to develop suckers. And these suckers, uh, they'll really sap a lot of strength out of the plant. So now you got to prune all the suckers constantly. So you literally, you dramatically increase your labor cost. The intent is that, hey, if you have this plant that's used to growing so many leaves, is now only having to grow half as many leaves, and it's not even having to grow the largest of the leaves, that the leaves that it does grow will end up being better leaves, right? More energy, more focus. And the thing about the whole thing was, is that something that sounds good on paper or is that something that actually makes a difference? I didn't know myself, to be honest with you. So in the end, when we finished the Sincompromiso blend using this Cultivo Tonto, Tonto crop, I ended up saying, okay, make me 50 number fives, actually the Toro size, using the Cultivo Tanto crop and make me 50 using the San Andres Negro from the exact same seed from the exact same farmer that's just done the traditional way. And let me see if I can blindly tell the difference. And I could 100% of the time. Yeah. The Cultivo Tanto is just a little sweeter, a little richer, a little more flavorful, a little less dull. It just, it's just, a bit better at every little step of the process. And since I could tell the difference, um, that's what I ultimately used on the cigar. Consumers, they pay for that. That increased tobacco cost is in the price of the cigar and the consumer gets to make the decision whether they think it's worth it or not. You know, because honestly, it probably adds about to the retail, to the consumer, it adds probably about $3 per cigar to use that particular wrapper versus the same tobacco from the same farmer done the traditional way. And then the other little tweak on the Sin Compromiso, the Cultivo Tanto, is the way the growing season works in Mexico, um, you are regretfully harvesting and curing into the beginning of their rainy season. So they have a very wet curing season, and that's a problem in the barns. So they have to, they have to, they have to burn propane burners they're not, they're not heat treating the tobacco or heat curing it, but they need to have the propane burners in order to keep the moisture level down or the leaves would never cure properly. That's not the way they used to traditionally do it. The way they used to do it before is they used to use a local wood that they would make their own charcoal out of. Yeah. And they would have these small charcoal pits. And that was the way that they would keep the heat down or keep the humidity down. And that little bit of smoking charcoal in the barn it also added just one more little characteristic to the taste and the flavor. And, and you really you can notice it before you light a Sin Compromiso. Just clip it and give it a cold draw. And you'll get that little bit of hickory smokiness. Not like a Kentucky fire cure. Not like a Latakia. It's not very, it's not like boom, like you're really, really like, if I didn't say that out loud, I don't think most people would notice it. But I think now that I did say that and you do that exercise the next time you cut one, 
you're going to notice that. And that's the way they used to do it back in the day. So we brought that back because it was always something that I missed with the modern propane. The thing with the propane is it's much more even. It's much more, uh, it's simpler to manage. Uh, oddly enough, I think there's less risk in the barn with the, with the, with the, uh, with the charcoal. Uh, yeah, propane, no, that, that, something goes that wrong was with my, the burner, something gets over. Yeah, that was my pro, next question, actually, was the, actually the, the curing. Yeah, the, 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 that was yeah. my next I question, the, actually, was, yeah. Propane is more dangerous than doing the traditional charcoal way. But the thing is, the charcoal way is just a lot of work. Yeah. It's a lot of maintenance. It's a lot of tending, you know. So, and look, it's, it's like everything. Everybody is impacted by labor and labor costs. So places that you can, and it's also much easier to get the barn even because you, okay, the barn's a little too wet on this side. We turn the burners up over in that edge of the barn. We turn them down on the other edge. You know what I mean? It's much more adjustable where the charcoal is much uh, more difficult to manage. You know, you shovel a little bit of dirt on top of it. You kind of poke it, stoke it a little bit. Uh, it's not as easy to keep the temperature even with the charcoal. Yeah. So I, I understand why the propane is the modern standard. And it has been for the last three decades, um, maybe four, actually, now I'm thinking about it. But I was like, you know what, if we're doing this crazy thing, let's add this crazy thing on top of it too. Why not? Might as well. And, uh, so, and that's, <laughs> and, I, and I think it makes a difference. Yeah. If I, if I didn't think it made a difference, I wouldn't do it. In the end, Absolutely. consumers get to decide whether it's worthwhile or it's not worthwhile. And a lot of things like these, I don't think that they're conscious with the consumer. I think it's more just subconscious. Are you really enjoying your experience? You may not understand why or what in particular is making it that way, but there's tons of San Andreas Negro wrapped cigars in the marketplace. What? Why is this one taste? And better is obviously a better is a matter of personal perspective, but why does yep. this one taste different? And and is that different something that I prefer? In my case, it is. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And like I was going to mention, the, uh, the 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 indigenous wood uh, curing process definitely adds that that complexity, that 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 cold draw, chicory, hickory type of flavor to it. Moving on to right. uh, a, a, a different cigar that Dunbarton has to offer, most recently released, the uh, Micarita, Micarita. That is the Sakakan. It is said to be a personal expression of your passion for cigars and has been described as the closest possible recreation of the smoking experience that had really started, started it all for you. Uh, can you share that experience uh, on how that that those broadleaf puros uh, sparked your passion for cigars? So, like every consumer that begins to smoke cigars, you're you're playing the field, you're kissing all the girls, you know, you're, you're trying to find out what you like and what you don't like. Um, the very first thing that I happened into seriously that like really grabbed my attention was these Connecticut broadleaf cigars um, that were made by Frank Yanesa at the Villazon factory. Frank was the owner and the tobacco buyer and also the head cigar maker. And then his partner in the factory was Estelle Padron. Estelle Padron is the brother 
of the famous Padron Cigars Padron, Orlando Padron. And, um, and they made these Connecticut broadleaf cigars that were really kind of rough, but they had sweet broadleaf and they were earthy. And it was like the first kind of genre that like really like, oh my God, this is the type of cigar that I like to smoke. You know, some people like that lean, racy, peppery style. Some people like that mild, creamy shade style. You know, some people like really balanced and elegant and nuanced. For me, it was these Connecticut Broadleaf cigars that were made by Frank and Estello that were really the first thing. And it's really, it's the only genre that I have steadily smoked for the last three plus decades. Like it's necessary. It's not even an option. It's, it's, it's water. It's, you know, it's, it's not even a, I have to have a Connecticut Broadleaf medium full earthy that inherent sweetness enough spice that i find it enjoyable but not overwhelming that's that's just that's in my wheelhouse and when i got to drew estate that really was that con that that cigar was the inspiration for liga bravada because that was the cigar i like to smoke now the difference was frank and estella were cheap fucks okay they 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 spent as little money as possible and the cigars and they were selling those cigars for little money too. So it wasn't like they were taking advantage of the consumer. Nobody had ever made an ultra or a premium, ultra premium handmade Connecticut broadleaf cigar. It was always viewed as a lesser tobacco. That was the way it was always perceived. Liga Pravada really is what kicked off this concept that consumers would be willing to spend 10, 15, $20 for a Connecticut broadleaf cigar. But you have to work the tobacco and you have to sort the tobacco and select the tobacco and make it worthy of that. You know what I mean? You you just can't, oh, instantly now it's a $15 cigar compared to the, and look, obviously the prices that Frank was selling cigars for, you know, back in the eighties and early nineties is not a benchmark, but most of his cigars are like $2 cigars, right? That's what they were. And um, so really Liga, the blends on Liga were a recreation of the work that Frank and Estello did. And then Nikkei Rita is just a repeat of that same genre again, okay? Because even though I leave Drew, I still need this cigar. This cigar is critical to me. I have no choice. I mean, I have a lot of cigars and a lot of blends that I think are superior, are more sophisticated. There's far more effort and time and a lot of things that are put into them that make them much more complex, like a Sin Compromiso, like a Muestra de Sacaba Witch, you know, even like the original Sobra Mesa. But if I had to just pick one, it would be a Mique Rita Blue, you know, Ancho Largo, Toro. That would be the one that if I had to, if I had to just say, I can only smoke one the rest of my life, this would be the one that I would smoke. And, um, and you know, the black, the Saka Khan is really just, a slight variation of that blue core blend with the addition of a Honduran tobacco, which gets it even closer to what Frank and Estella were doing because they were using Honduran tobacco from a particular form up there in the Northern Triangle, uh, you know, east of Cofradilla, uh, called La Estrella. But they had to sh the farm got shut down in the late 90s because of the drug trade. It just became too dangerous to farm there anymore. So that tobacco went away. But the seeds that they used to grow that tobacco, they were maintained because the farm was owned by Oliva Tobacco Company. 
So they would okay. pilot crop the seeds so they could always renew the seed bank for it. And so we ended up planting those seeds that originally grew at the La Estrella farm in Northern Honduras. We now started growing them in Southern Honduras specifically for this project. So I think that the black is probably the closest I've come flavor wise to those cigars that I remember. And again, remember this is, this is 30 plus years ago. So I'm using, I'm using a feeling, you know what I mean? How they, yep. how I thought they tasted, how they made me feel. But I, I think that the black blend is the closest representation to that original cigar that started all of this broadleaf for me through the course of my career. So is it true the Vitolo, the uh, known as the Sekakan, is named after a nickname that you had uh, received back in your Navy days? And if so, uh, where did that nickname come from? So nickname came from two different aspects, three things, really. So I was in the Navy in the early 80s. Um, I wasn't willing to, I was an enlisted squid. Um, I had been stationed on my ship for four years. I wasn't willing to re-up. And it was during the uh, Reagan years, Hayes Gray and underway. And uh, so we were, we were at sea like nine, 10 months of every year. It was crazy. And um, on my third med cruise, I think it was my third med cruise. I was so bored that, and it was literally the last cruise I took before I ended up getting out. I decided, you know what? I'm going to become combat officer certified as an enlisted guy. I'm going to become junior officer of the deck underway. And these are the things that the junior officers qualify for, right? And JOD underway is the person that actually cons the ship, actually tells the helm to go here, tells the helm to go there. I mean, obviously the captain and the XO and all those guys override you, right, in the end. But you're the one that's doing the daily, the, the active navigation of where the ship is going. And so I was qualifying as the junior officer of the deck underway. And um, so when you're doing that, it's called conning the ship. And at the time, Shaka Khan was very popular. So Shaka Khan <laughs> became Saka Khan. So they would say it in kind of that sing-songy Shaka Khan, Saka Khan way. They would say Saka Khan, Saka Khan. And then to add more to it, my middle name is Timujin. Okay. Uh, my father is Turkish. And oh, okay. uh, like everybody that's like everybody, um, you have a lineage going back to Genghis Khan. Okay. When you're, when you're Turkish and Timujin was the birth name of Genghis Khan. So he named me Timujin. He wanted, he wanted to name me Hussein Timujin Saka, but my mom said, no, he's got to go to kindergarten. That is not going to fly. It's not like today, right? <laughs> I mean, we're talking about, you know, we're talking about the 60s here. So that, that wasn't going to cut it. So I became Steve, but Timujin stuck. And so, you know, a little bit of high aspirations there, Dad. I, you know, Genghis Khan's birth name, but okay, I got it. So, so it had that <laughs> extra tie in the fact that I have Genghis Khan's birth name and this thing and thing. So, Saka Khan was just something that, uh, you know, how nicknames work. You don't get to pick them, right? No, I got kind of lucky. I have some other ones that, suck. you know, I have some that suck that I'll never ever talk about. But I, I, Saka Squatch is a good one. <laughs> Saka Khan's a good one. 
Um, the people in Nicaragua, a lot of them call me Papa Saka. Um, you know, so there's there's some there's some nicknames that, uh, yeah. that work, and uh, that's and that's the origin of Saka Khan. Speaking of Papa Saka and nicknames, you have a uh, you have mentioned in a previous interview that uh, there's a new size of Mike Rita uh, Black coming out pretty soon, uh, I think, called Papa Saka. Can you talk about that? Yes. Yeah, I mean, yeah, no, we've been making the cigars now for whew, at least eight months. So it's it's a five and five eighths by forty eight. It's a smaller Vitola in the in the Mike Rita Black blend. And I'm just gonna look. You make certain cigars where you have to think about the general public, okay? And so like Sober Mesa Brule Toro and Robusto and Double Corona much more easy for the average consumer to to get. When you start giving these catchy little names to things, that's more in the kind of geek realm, okay? That's yeah. more into the really invested cigar smoker who's going to pay attention. I can do that in Mike Rita Black. Because, look, Mike Rita Blacks are not inexpensive. Um, the chances of Mike Rita Black becoming some big mainstay kind of thing Mickey Rita Black is kind of it's kind of like the cherry on top of the Mickey Rita brand, right? And so, so I'm I'm gonna stick with these. I have another nickname that I'm probably gonna go for the next size, um, but you know. So, but we're gonna use we're gonna use Papa Saka on the five and five eighths by forty eight, and that's I'm hoping to start shipping it uh, probably July of this year. I mean, it's not going to be cigars that are going to be the problem. It's like everything. It's going to be damn boxes. Boxes are going to be the problem. But I, I think that uh, I think we're going to be able to be ready in time for us to be able to deliver it. The cigars will definitely be ready because the cigars, like I said, we started making cigars over eight months ago. So cigars, cigars, cigars moving, will be ready to go. Moving to the Muesta de Saca, uh, uh, the line of uh, Moshe de Saka is unique blends and Vitolas made in limited quantities. Most recently, you've come out with your sixth release, the uh, the Bewitched, which is now available. Folks, go get it. From what I understand, Moesha has a, uh, in, in English, it means sample, but it has a much more meaningful translation in the, the cigar industry, cigar world. Can you explain uh, like what that what that means and and how that Stems from it means the same. It means the same thing, but muestras are the are what we call the the bench samples that we're making as we're developing brands, right? So, look, you know, you 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 pin a lot of hopes and dreams when you're making a new cigar. You're you're hoping this is going to be the one that's the home run. You're hoping this is the one that's going to bring the company financial success. So, I mean, muestras are really an incredible important part of what we do on the development side of making cigars and cigar blends. So again, kind of like Liga Pravada being so simple, like the Pravada part was an add-on, but the term Liga is a very commonly thrown around term in every factory setting, right? It's yeah. just nobody ever heard of it until I put it on a brand. It's the same thing with the word Muestra. Muestra is not some weirdly new term, Muestra is as common as a fork or as a plate or as a, you know what I mean? As a box, you know what I mean? But it's not a term that most consumers have ever heard before. So, uh, 
And because the way the line is, all these cigars are just different. They have no connectivity in any way whatsoever with one another. In other words, uh, you can smoke an, smoke an Exclusivo and love it, and you can smoke an Unstolen Valor and hate it and flip the two around because those are two wildly different cigars, okay? They're, they're meant for two totally different smokers. Now, for the hardcore guys that like to play the field and want to see what's different and unique, great. But for the average consumer, um, it's terrible. In fact, in fact, it's actually become a bit of a problem because I never envisioned when I did Muestras that they were going to go any more beyond a year. My thought was I was going to make a Muestra for a year, and then I was going to replace it with the next Muestra, and then I was going to replace it with the next Muestra. The thing is, there's just so much demand that I'm still getting sales of a significant level on Exclusivo and on Naka Tamale and even on the Now Leave Me the Hell Alone. And so it's kind of become a brand that I never had intended for it to become a brand. And in fact, you're going to see a change in 2023 where I'm going to have to start putting descriptions in all of the boxes so that consumers have some clue as to what the hell they're getting because they are so wildly different than one another. Personally, yeah. of the Muestra line, I like Naka Tamale the best and I like the Bewitch the best. The, those are my two favorites. Yeah, the um, Bewitch Exclusivos is, is are too mild for me. Thank you. I mean, Exclusivos, but Exclusivos are made all of tobaccos that are aged a minimum of five to seven years. So they're super smooth. They're super aged out. If you like that style, much more delicate, kind of refined, kind of smoke, then you know, it may be the best. And there are people that tell me Exclusivo is their favorite Muestra. And other people tell me Nakatama. That's the thing about it. They're all so different that, you know, everyone's going to have their own likes and dislikes. So I need to make it, I need to make, a, it's too much for me to expect the retailer to tell this story. And it's too much for me to expect the consumer to go to the website and read these descriptions and understand it. Because knowing when you see a brand, all the cigars within the brand are a similar blend. <coughs> the only difference is the size, where that's just not the case with Muestra. Muestra, they are just genuinely wildly different cigars, each yeah. and every release. Speaking of the packaging, <clears throat> the single cigar come in like coffins. And, mm -hmm. <coughs> excuse me. I noticed a an owl on it. Can you explain the significance between yeah. uh, of the owl? Yeah. So owls in Nicaraguan in Nicaraguan culture are considered to be witches. So when a Nicaraguan ah. sees an owl, they believe that it's the They believe it's a fittest physical manifestation of a witch watching them. And if it's a dark colored owl, it's an evil witch. And if it's a light colored owl, it's a good witch. So really? light owls are good omens, dark owls are bad omens. Uh, Nicaraguans are very superstitious. So the whole thing, and I find the blend, I, I find the bewitch blend to be one of the more interesting ones because it's really hard to describe. It, most of my blends can be distilled down to four or five basic flavor notes you know what I mean, in a description. The Bewitch is a very hard blend to describe 
Um, it's 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 very. It's I don't want to say subtle because it's not subtle, but it's not like it's not like the earth jumps out at you or the pepper jumps out at you or the caramel jumps out at you or the coffee jumps out at you. It's just this amalgamation of tastes that are just really pleasing. Okay. And and I found when I was smoking it, I find it a very entrancing cigar to smoke. I find it one that I keep pulling from my mouth and just kind of staring at it like, why? You know, what is it about this? You know what I mean? Why is this this way? And so I found the cigar bewitching. So I'm like, you know, I'm gonna call it the bewitched. And I'm like, okay. And then I'm talking to Anna, who's my Nicaraguan assistant. And, and that's when she tells me the superstition about the owls. I'm like, wow, that's really great because the original release of this blend was done for the owl shop in uh, Worcester, Massachusetts. So now it kind of comes full circle, right? I made it as a blend, as a 75th anniversary cigar for the Owl Shop. I decided I'm going to release it as a Muestra. I decided I'm going to name it the Bewitched because I find it entrancing and bewitching. And it turns out that an owl is the physical manifestation of a witch. So it just kind of, the dominoes fall in place and now you have an owl. Perfect. Speaking of Muestra, I heard a rumor and you spoke about it. You spoke about it uh, uh, briefly, but um, there's a new Muesta in the works, uh, which is named after a volcano mm-hmm. that erupted about, and it was like six months straight in 1883, and it submerged uh, in, in, in between the two islands of uh, uh, Java and, and Sumatra, which what I understand is one of the deadliest volcanoes and the most destructive volcanoes uh, in history. Can you confirm the release of Muesha de Saka or uh, Krakatoa? And if so, can you yeah, disclose Krakatoa, the, the blend and release date? Well, the release date, I'm not a hundred percent sure of um, the blend, the blend, the blend took a long time. Blend, blend took like three damn years. I, it got, I got so sick of the blend that I stopped working on it because um, I was never really happy with it. The, the, part of the problem for me is I don't tend to like, I don't tend to like super uber blow your head off peppery cigars, right? I, I like cigars that are full bodied. I like cigars that are really rich. I like cigars that are, I like cigars. Sometimes I like my cigars a little spicier like Nikirita Tricky Traka, but very rarely do I want to have an experience where I feel like I'm being punched in the face by a cigar. Um, for me, even if a cigar is full body, I always want it to be smooth. So with Krakatoa, I wanted to kind of step a little bit out of my comfort zone and try to make much more of a pepper style bomb cigar. Because that's part of yeah. what the Muester line about is about is me doing these projects that aren't normally in my in my in my normal repertoire and um so and i just i finally ended up hitting on a blend after three years that it's still a very very strong blend but i can already tell you the guys that live on a steady diet of la florida minicana double Laheros or roma craft neanderthals it it won't be strong enough for them but i can't do anything about that you know what I mean? I just, it's not that those cigars aren't good. And it's not that I don't smoke either of those cigars. 
I just smoke them very infrequently, right? Because I don't like a cigar that when I smoke it, it makes me feel like I have to take a breather. Uh, to me, a really good cigar is one that I find strong enough and rich enough and satisfying as I smoke it. But as soon as I finish it, I go, hmm, I really would like another one of those cigars. And th yeah. th that's kind of where my head is at when it comes to cigars. I always want to be just craving a little more. And uh, the Krakatoa is a, it's a, it's, it's just a real explosion of flavor. And it's the first time that I've ever used the, the Pennsylvania Green River One sucker in it. So it's a, it's a, it's a new tobacco incorporation for me. And it's a six by 48. It's a Pareo. It comes with a special little volcano shaped pigtail on it. Cause if you're going to go into the shtick, you might as well go all the way into the shtick. And, um, and that's, and that's the deal. When will it actually ship? I'm not quite sure. Uh, the problem always with all Muesters is those damn coffins. The coffins yeah. always tend to be the snag. With I can with imagine. Muester. And honestly, and honestly, again, my, my original vision was I was going to release a Muestra. It was going to be special and it would go away. I never had any intention that I'd still be making all the other Muestras. So I never envisioned a future where I was literally going to be making hundreds of thousands of damn coffins, right? That just, that never crossed my mind that this was going to be this kind of ongoing project. Now, what you would say as a consumer is, oh, well, just get rid of the coffin, right? But here's the problem. The retailers don't want the coffins to go away because no. the coffins are part of what helps them sell the cigars and to set it apart as being that's, something special, right? That's curb appeal. So yeah. you're kind of damned if you do, and you're damned if you do, and you're damned if you don't, right? And you also, look, the Muester line has just organically become a whole brand all on its own. And you also, you don't fight with success. So yeah. I'm kind if of stuck broke, in the coffin it. game. Until... Until it gets to the point where I can't get anyone to make the coffins anymore. Or right. until it gets to the point that they become so cost prohibitive. And, look, and the funny part about it is, I mean, look, Westerns are expensive. Look, they're expensive cigars without the coffin. But they would be less expensive without it. But really, I absorb the coffin cost. Because if you think about it, most cigars and coffins, they retail for $22 to $24 typically. And Muesters are actually priced under the $20 mark, just barely, you know, like $19.75 or $19.95. Um, but I, I, I try to make it as affordable as possible and still keep it in the coffin. But eventually, there's going to – and the other thing, too, that kind of the way it's worked out now is, so the person that makes the coffin, I have him in December and in January, he makes a boatload of coffins because it's such a pain in the ass for him too. So when he's slower, he just makes more coffins. And I basically are like, hey, Pedro Vargas, I'm gonna need this many thousands of these coffins, this many thousands of these coffins, this many thousands of these coffins in the next year. When you have time, just make coffins. And if you get them all made by the end of January and you can deliver them all to me, even if I'm not gonna use them for 11 months, just go ahead and make them because Come, you know, May, when you're getting into season, 
and everybody needs cigar boxes to, you know, to fill with all their cigars for the summer and the fall. Um, he's like so jammed up with the work. So I just end up basically fronting money. I got a lot of money tied up in coffins. But even with that said, when it's something new like Krakatoa, I don't have any cigars I'm intending on releasing this year, but I have no idea what the resale of the cigar is going to ultimately be. So it's very hard for me to say to Pedro, hey, Pedro, go ahead and make an extra 20,000 coffins. You know what I mean? It's it's really, yeah. it's, it's, it's real money. So uh, obviously with, with different Vitolas, flavors and intensity can vary and change with the experience uh, of specific blends with uh, different sizes and different draws. Do you have a, a Vitola preference, a, a go-to size uh, that you feel encompasses your preferred smoking experience and then that balances your, your natural draw. Yeah, I look, I, I make a lot of six by 48. So I'm, it's a rather unique size. Um, not really many companies do any six by 48s at all. Um, I just, it has to be of a Tola that I really, really like. Um, is that a short classic Churchill is that a thicker Lonsdale? I, I don't know what it is because there's no classification for 6x48. Um, but I, I make a lot of 648s. And, uh, and like every other manufacturer, I make a lot of Toros. I mean, other than Muestras, where I'm intending on making a specific size, almost all the blends are always developed in a, in a Toro format to begin with. 6x52 is kind of where you start. And then you end up, once you settle, once you finish the blend in that format, you then do the adjustments necessary for the other formats. Because um, like typically in a line, you're going to have three different blending iterations. You're going to have a blend that's going to work probably in the 48 to 54 kind of category. And then you're going to have a blend that's going to work in the Gordo 56 and up category. And then you're going to have a variation of that blend for the 46s to like the 42s to the 46s and then below 42 is another total category onto itself, you know, that you have to deal with, but I don't have to deal with it much. Um, look, I like smaller formats. Consumers roughly don't, um, but they're willing to endure me doing 48 ring gauge cigars. And so it's a way that the retailers are willing to put that on the shelf. Um, I'd love to make more Coronas, but I can't because the retailers won't stock them. And the reason yeah. won't stock them is because there's too few consumers that would buy them. Um, I get away with it in, but even, but I don't even get away with it. So like in Mi Querida, I had Pequeño Pequeño, which is a four by 44. It was a great cigar, sold incredibly well, but it only sold incredibly well in 20% of my shops. The other 80% of the shops didn't want it. You know what I mean? So, yep. and the other problem that you have with smaller formats is consumers don't want to pay the money that they cost because it doesn't cost significantly less to make a smaller cigar. The difference between making a Corona and a double Corona from a manufacturing perspective is typically only 15 to 18%, but you can't sell it like that. Uh, consumer smokes a double Corona, he gets to smoke for two hours. He buys a Corona, he gets to smoke for 35 minutes. He, he expects that Corona to cost, you know, at least half of what the double Corona costs. And it really doesn't work out that way. And it was one of the things that drew a state, you know, everybody's kind of like, 
can't believe what, how much a dirty wrap costs. Dirty wrap price is crazy. Who's going to pay $12 for a dirty wrap? I don't know how much they cost today, but that was the initial price. And my thing was, listen, that's what it costs to make a dirty wrap. If they don't buy it, we just don't make it. But we're not going to artificially suppress the price to hit a price point because we don't need to make small cigars. Now, in certain brands, because of the leaf size variations, you're forced to make smaller formats in order to better utilize your crop. And it's particularly wrapper that really dictates that more than anything else. Well, Connecticut Broadleaf Cigar, you don't have any wrappers that are small. I mean, a small Connecticut Broadleaf makes you a double Corona, right? So there's no reason why you're forced to make Coronas. Um, so, you know, when you make these smaller formats, if, if in order for the math to work out, it means a consumer has to be willing to pay for it. And there is a group of consumer that is, but it's a very small group. And, and that's the reason why you see so you see so few of them in the marketplace. And it's just uh, consumers. I think that's the thing that most, I'm sorry, I'm running out of light here. Um, that most consumers don't understand is the we make what they buy. We can nibble around the edges and do these specialty projects here and there. But in the end, I mean, it's a business. And in order to be able to afford to do the specialty projects, you have to have the core that supports the company. And what supports the company is Toros and Robustos and Gordos. Now, I don't make a lot of Gordos because I don't tend to smoke a lot of Gordos. Okay, I have a, I have a Gordo in Brulee, I have a Gordo in the blue and in the red Nicaritas, but that's really the only place I have any Gordos at all. I don't have I don't I don't I don't have a lot of six by sixties or seven by sixties or or seven by sixty fours or yeah. you know these eighty ring gauges and whatnot. Those crazy I crazy patolos that I, I, that. Yeah. I'm not a big fan of those either. I mean, I I'll smoke a six by sixty if it's given to me, but uh, like my preferred preference, I think I'm with you with a like a six by fifty four, six by sixty or six by fifty, six by forty eight, like, but no, nothing. The Gordos are not really <clears throat> my personal preference. There's a huge group uh, of consumers. Oh, absolutely. Only smoke 60 ring and above. They're, they're trying to get the, the, the most bang for their buck, right? You know, that's a conventional wisdom, but I also think there's a flip side to that. If you look at those consumers that tend to smoke those really large formats, almost all of them are – young not younger in age but newer cigar smokers right yep and part of the thing when you step up the vitola size that large it always smokes cooler and it always smokes milder so it actually becomes a more approachable cigar and by today's standards i mean we don't really make mild mild cigars the way we used to make them anymore you know the the whole the whole level of intensity has moved so far up the chain that, uh, that, you know, even a, a mild to medium cigar today, that cigar would have been considered incredibly strong 30 years ago. I mean, put it in perspective, plain straight Partagas was considered one of the strongest cigars in the marketplace in yep. the late eighties, early nineties on a 10 point scale. That cigar is maybe a four today. The cigar hasn't changed. It's just all the other blends and what consumers expect. And it's a combination of people drinking rye, people drinking higher proof spirits, 
uh, people eating ethnic foods. You know what I mean? Uh, it's just, look, when I was a kid, you had potato chips, you had sour cream, you had barbecue. You now have triple wasabi, sriracha, you know what I mean? Boom, boom, boom. You know what I mean? Yep. That stuff didn't exist. So the benchmark of what we consider strong today is so different than the benchmark of the generation and two generations before us. And that and that moves the that moves the needle along. So if you're that newer consumer and you want to smoke some of these newer brands, you're almost forced into smoking the 60 ring gauge cigar in order because it helps to temper down the bite. It helps to make it a bit right. milder. It makes it more approachable for them. So I, I don't think it's just a value only thing. And I don't think it's just a, hey, I'm a big man and I want to have a big stick. I, I think that part of it is the fact that it is actually a milder smoking experience for that consumer. Switching gears, I'm seeing a trend of cigar advent calendars for the holidays. Most recently, we've seen uh, releases from Smokin, Oliva, and Tatuaje. Is there a Saka Claus or some type of Dunbarton calendar that uh, it might be a possibility in the future? Okay. I, I don't begrudge any of those guys doing it. They they know their consumers better um, than I do. But for me, it's an it doesn't even make sense. I, I like to I like to see what I'm buying. I like to know. I mean, it's a 25 cigar purchase. It's real money. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I don't want to be surprised. You know what I mean? I don't want to I don't want to gamble that I'm going to open 15 of those little doors and go uh, uh, uh. You know what I mean? So to me, it doesn't work. Now, is there something where you do a holiday sampler and there'd be, you know, seven special cigars in it? Boom, boom, boom. Maybe. But the maybe, whole maybe the 12 days of Saka. Yeah, something like that. But I mean, the the whole, just the logistics of it, the size of the package, the loading it out, uh, the cost of shipping it, just all that advent calendar stuff, it doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, where does the consumer put it? You know, how do you store it? And then you got on top of that, you also have the fact that what happens to the ones you don't sell? Okay, because yeah. it's got an expiration date on it, man. If someone didn't buy that sucker by December 1st, you're kind of screwed here. You know what I mean? Trust me, there are going to be plenty of people and look, smoke insult, but he has a direct contact with consumers. Right. There are going to be plenty of these advent calendars that are going to be on closeout. Okay. When we get to February, trust me, because I yeah. see them stacked in retailer shops. Okay. They didn't go over the way everyone had hoped they would go over, which doesn't surprise me because common sense tells me it's not really a good idea. You know, I just, just, I just know as a serious cigar consumer, and if you're not that serious cigar consumer, I mean, why would you, I, I, I just have a hard time wrapping my brain around who it's for. Right. If it's, for the average guy, he's not going to want to buy 25 cigars blind, right? Yeah. For the guy that's no, a hardcore lover of your brand, he already knows what he likes and what he doesn't like. He might want to have a couple right. something special for the holidays, but I don't think he wants to have 25 random Russian roulette, let me open the door kind of experiences. But that's my opinion. Uh, maybe maybe yeah. uh, Pete and Oliva will and look and they're going to prove me, they're going to prove me wrong cuz next year they're going to make it again, right? So if it yep. was commercially successful and retailers did well with it and then they will make it again because again, 
we try things, but ultimately the market dictates what we choose to make or not make. And before we go any further, is this video or is it only audio? Both. Okay, so let me turn on a light because I'm getting darker and darker here. So bear with me. <laughs> no, no worries. The sun is setting in the great white north. Yeah. So now I've went I look from at the, in the dark, extra shiny. Extra shiny. I look at uh, the advents, like, for example, I, I, I always purchase uh, a, a wine advent for my wife every year. And it is, uh, you know, it's a random plethora, and there's whites in there she doesn't like. And so I, I'm with you, where she'll pull out day number seven, and it's a white, and she's not going to drink it. And it's essentially a bottle for the neighbors. Um, but uh, you know, with a somebody who is a Dunbarton fan, somebody who likes Dunbarton cigars, you know, it could be a a nice one. But like you said, price wise, I mean, that could be different. And also, no. from a retail standpoint, that shit could be sitting on a shelf for who knows how long. And the the, the amount that they purchased, yeah. So I agree. Uh, our friends at Cigar Dojo has been. Our, our friends at Cigar Dojo has been uh, collaborating with companies like uh, Protocol, Alec Bradley, Espinosa, Hoya, and more. Do you anticipate any uh, future collaborations with Cigar Dojo? Yeah, look, we've been talking about it for a couple, three years. They're waiting on me. I'm, I'm, I'm a slow up. You know, I just... Uh... It's like everything you, you gotta, there's only so many hours in a given day and so many days in a given year. Um, yeah. but we, we, we talked about doing a, a dojo thing. Look, I, I can only do so many limited projects a year. Cause part of the thing is for me, I can't just slap these things together because I, I think right. most companies look at these projects incorrectly. They look at it as an easy way to grab cash. And the way I look at it is, is it's an opportunity for you to fail with your most loyal consumers. Because the people that go out of their way to buy these are the guys who are, they love your brand, they love your cigars, they're buying them on blind faith that they're going to be good. So these cigars that you do in these limited batch releases, they may not be your best tasting cigar ever because you gotta make it something unique and different. So they may not like it, like frog juice. Frog juice is a weird one, right? But it has to be really worthy. You know what I mean? It has to be something that is different. You can't just take an inch off something, make something a little bigger. Oh, let me swap a different wrapper on it. Let me come up with a cutesy story. I, I, these, are, these are things that are often and regularly done. And I think they're lazy. And I think it's really taking advantage of your most loyal customer. Because it's your most loyal customer that is going out of his way buying from someone that he's never bought from before or rarely buys from and buying something on blind faith that you're going to give them something that's worthy and exceptional. So that's a lot yeah. of pressure to do that. And so for me, and you see it every, you see it, think about how many brands that have become uber hot and they just limited after limited after limited after limited. And eventually they just peter out. Right. And I mean, I'm like one of the few brands that every time I release a limited, 
it is consecutive. It sells out every single time. And it's been doing so for five consecutive years. Okay. And the reason why is because the people that they have faith that I'm going to give them something worthwhile when they take that gamble and they take that chance. What that means though, is it means I have to do the work in order for that to be the case. And I can only do so many of those in a given frame of time. I, I would argue that I've done too much already. I mean, I have so many different blends and so many different brands. And, you know, I know that as an individual consumer, you're going to have your preferences. You're going to like A better than B. You don't even like C. But I, I don't think that every single one of them in their genre has been at the top of their class. They're all really, really good cigars. The question yeah. is, hey, are you the type of guy that wants to smoke a Connecticut Shade Mild Cigar? If you're not, then guess what? Brulee is not for you. But if you're the guy that smokes Monte Cristo White or Ashton Classic or Roman Julieta Churchill's or Undercrown Shade, guess what? Sober Mesa Brulee, it's going to be there, okay? You're going to smoke that cigar, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to rock, okay, for you. So understanding that obligation I can only do so much. And uh, so, yeah, eventually Dojo will have, in fact, the cigar for Dojo is done. The cigars aren't made, but the blend is actually a hundred percent finished. Now, so we had, a, uh, we, had, we had three names of a potential <laughs> Saka Dojo collaborations within the, the cigar group, the Chi-Town crew uh, within the cigar Dojo. Uh, it was, uh, uh, Samurai Saka, Samurai Saka, okay. uh, Moesta de Ninja, and El El Cinturon del Negro, uh, or, or El Cinturon, yeah, del Negro, which means uh, the, the black belt. But yeah, no, we're we're yeah, that, last, that last one. I'm not touching with a ten foot pole. You're not you're not taking me down that road. I, I <laughs> there, there's no way in today's world I'm putting the word Samurai Negro Saka. on a package. <laughs> I feel like Samurai Saka might be a good one. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, what you guys don't know right. is you don't know what the blend is. So here's so, the other thing, too. Cigar, cigar names, you can't just come up with a good name. You have to come up with a name that reflects what the product is. In and words, also avoid any, so, well, any existing uh, trademarks, right? Right. So while Samurai Saka sounds good, but as soon as you say Samurai Saka, that's got to be a strong cigar, right? That's got to be a spicy cigar. You can't have a cigar called Samurai Saka if it doesn't cut, right? It's right. got to, you know what I mean? The name, the name has a representation to it. So you can't just tack a name because I, I, I think too many people don't think about these things. They, they come up with, they got a blend, they come up with a catchy name, they put the two together and boom, boom, boom. It, it, it can't work that way. The name has to fit. It has to in some way accurately fit with the product. In other words, you can't name your kid Rocco if he's 130 pounds wet. You know what I mean? Because <laughs> when you tell somebody, hey, Rocco's coming over, you in your head, you already have a vision of what Rocco's going to look like before he comes to the door. Now, is that fair? Is that right? Is that just? No, but it doesn't matter. Because human nature is we all have an expectation, right? Some girl is named Candy. We already know what Candy sounds like. We already know what Candy looks like. We already know how Candy acts. So it's part of, uh, 
you got to be really careful with this with this naming, you know, because it, it does actually funny make you, a difference. Funny you say that. My wife's uh, name is Candace, but everyone calls her Candy. So that's yes, exactly what you said. <laughs> uh, if you yeah, are not sure. <laughs> Uh, switching to a different gear because I'm going to get in trouble if I continue. If you're not smoking your own line, if you go into your humidor and you grab something, what is your what is your go-to non-Dunbarton? So let me first say, I like all other makers prefer my cigars more than other cigars. Number one. Number two. I try every day to smoke at least one other cigar from another manufacturer. And most of the time that is something new. And it tends to be my second cigar of the day because I want my first cigar of the day to be good. And because that's the one I'm having with my morning espresso. So I'm willing to gamble on my second cigar because I'm going into that cigar almost always blind. It's something that was handed to me, something that was recommended, something that I thought sucked but I see a lot of people raving about it online. So I want to revisit it to see, hey, did I get a dud? Maybe I did. Um, but to answer the general question the way you intended it, um, some other brands that I keep in the humidor are like always there. Like I mentioned earlier in the show, I'm a fan of Fuente's Don Carlos. Um, okay. Don Carlos to me okay. is a perfect representation of a Cameroon wrap cigar. Um, I like some Tatuajes, uh, Tilly Tatuaje Black. Um, I keep the, uh, I keep, I, he calls it a petite Lonsdale or petite Lancero, but it's actually a Lonsdale. I don't understand the name, but I don't care. It's kind of like a six by maybe 43 ish roughly. Um, I smoke that. Um, I, uh, I occasionally I'll dip in and I'll have a Padron anniversary, a 1926. And when I have a 1926, I tend to go one of two ways, the large one, the number one, or I'll go for the smaller, like the Prince of Peace size, right? The small, like, what is it? Like a four inch, four by 44 ish, roughly four by 45 um, box press. Um, I do sprinkle in an average month. Uh, I might have two or three Habanos. Um, I still occasionally smoke Cuban cigars. So two or three Cuban cigars still every month. Um, what else do I occasionally smoke? Uh, I'll occasionally smoke one of Nicholas's Tabernacles. Um, I prefer, I know everybody went gaga over the 142, but I, I preferred the, uh, the original one personally, uh, the broadleaf one over the Havana seed one. Um, hmm. A Papine makes a cigar called the Cedros that I like. It's kind of, again, a yep. thicker Lonsdale format with a cedar wrapper. Um, that cigar is in my humidor. Uh, so, I mean, there's a few things here and there, you know, um, not a lot. Um, but, uh, but in the end, you have to understand I'm making all the cigars that we make for my palate. So it's just, so for me, they're right. Um, and when I want something stronger, I smoke a tricky traca. And this morning with my morning coffee, I smoked the sober Mesa Brulee blue. And, uh, you know, so have enough, have enough variation in the brands now and the different blends that it covers a pretty wide spectrum of cigar needs, you know? So, but yeah, every once in a while I'll, I'll smoke something else. I'm, I'm not opposed to it. Um, but I don't, uh, there isn't something that I like, Oh, I gotta have now. Right. With, with, like the Don Carlos I do. Cause I don't have a Cameroon style cigar. 
Uh, I don't I don't have any with Cameroon wrapper. So if I want that delicate, light, cedar, spiciness that you get out of a Cameroon cigar, I want that little bit of a floral note that that wrapper gives off. I want to smoke something that's a little softer on the palate. That, that's a great, great cigar for me to smoke. You know, that's exactly um, why I keep know, the, uh, the, the, the CAO, the CAO Vision 2020 that they came out with. Prime example. I'm I'm with you. Same thing. A Cameron wrapper, a very smooth, uh, flavorful cigar. But uh, like you said, it's a uh, it's just something that if, if you're craving that at the moment, that is a perfect uh, yeah. expression. Uh, out of your line, out of the Dunbarton family, what is your considered your favorite child or your go-to uh, cigar out of the Dunbarton Tobacco and Trust? I mentioned it earlier. If I had to keep one, it'd be the just the regular old Mikerita Blue and the six by fifty-two, the Ancho Largo. But I can tell you what I smoke the most of because, so like when I take cigars from the warehouse, they're not free. At the end of the year, I get a bill for everything I've taken. Okay, because I have to pay the company back. <laughs> the only thing that bothers me is that I don't get a discount, but that's an argument between me and the and the wife. But separate of that. You can look at what I'm taking out of the warehouse. I, I tend to smoke a lot of Mike Rita 6x52s in the blue and the Gorditas, the 4x48s. I tend to smoke in Tricky Traca a lot of the number 648s. Um, in Muestra, I'm primarily smoking Naka Tamales and recently a lot of Bewitched. Um, in Sin Compromiso, it's uh, Intrepidos and Sin Compromiso number fives. I obviously smoke more Paladin de Sacas than I used to, but Paladin de Saca for me is even a special occasion cigar. Cause remember I get a better price than you guys get at retail, but I still have to pay for it too. So it's not, it's not cheap. Um, plus two, you know, it's a cigar that requires you to focus on it. Um, in Sobre Mesa, regular Sobre Mesa, I smoke a lot of Elegante and Cedros and the short Churchill and in the Brulee, Mostly blues, but every once in a while, the next second one I'll grab is the Toro, um, six by 52. Um, Umbagogs, it's almost always the Toro, Toro, six by 52. Uh, am I missing anything? I'm sure I am. I mean, I've been smoking <laughs> a lot of Mike Rita um, lately. Um, but I mean, that's kind of, that kind of pretty much, that's probably like between those, just those Vitolas. That's probably 60% of my Dunbarton consumption is in those, you know, sprinkling an unstolen valor, few Lanceros along the way, you know, because you understand too, I do a lot of smoking just for quality control. So I'm pretty much forced to smoke everything. But or as our friend uh, Terrence Riley would cigar. call it, validating, right? Like you're validating. <laughs> um, I'm not one sure last what question means, but. <laughs> One last question. Uh, we talked about the, the Papasaka. We talked about the Krakatoa. Is there anything else in the works that, that people uh, can, either in the concept or cre creation stage, that people can, can be excited for coming out pretty soon? Um, well, this year I am going to release Red Meat Lovers as a nationwide brand. So that brand is going to, which has originally been a smoke and exclusive for the last four years is now going to be made available to all of our accounts um, this summer. So, and there's going to be uh, 
Great smoke, uh, by the way, folks. If you're one. listening, that's a good one. Yeah, we're gonna do. Uh, we're gonna keep the beef stick, and we're gonna keep the six by fifty-two. It'll be renamed the ribeye, and then uh, and then we're adding two other sizes that have yet to be released to the line. Even in the past limited releases, we're gonna put to, to look. There has to be a robusto. Uh, again, just kind of a prerequisite of it being a nationwide brand versus a single release. I mean, look, the beef stick is the outlier, but the beef stick is just really, really good. So I'm going to just force that one on the retailer. But I, I could force one skew on a retailer. I can't. I can't force them to buy three other additional skews. Um, so, but uh, I, I can't force them to do anything. Let me take that back. But I, I can convince them in a very strong way. <laughs> You know, to, to give to give the, to give the beef stick a shot on their shelves. You know what I mean? Ultimately, look. Yeah. If it doesn't work for the retailer, then it doesn't work for me either, because I don't make money selling the cigar once. I make money when the cigar turns. You know, because I'm I'm in the business of making cigars, so it ultimately has to be successful for the retailer in order for it to be successful for me too. So, and if it turns out that the consumers don't like the beef stick. Um, then, you know, we'll figure out something to do with that, with that fourth slot on the retailer shelves. But, but I, I think, I think it'll do really, really well. And, um, so yeah, we have red meat lovers and then, so we have Krakatoa, we have Papasaka, we have, uh, we have this, have a variety of limited projects like every year, um, that is going to be introduced, uh, through a variety of retailers. I try to mix it up. I try to do a couple things for some big guys and a couple things for some little guys. And, you know, and, and it's also the same thing as that. It's normally when you do these kind of projects, they die, you know what I mean? But none of mine seem to die. So it's like, you know, Don Derma. And I mean, who would ever imagine that I would be doing Don Derma, you know, over three years later and not just doing it, but making more of it, you know what I mean? Or, or U-Boat with my friends at Rockies and the guys from Small Batch, they, they want another batch of Barbara Amaria. And, and that's very unusual because normally when you do these limiteds, they're kind of a FOMO sale, right? Consumers buy them because they're afraid of missing out. And once they get it, oh, well, I had that and they move on. It's very rare that you have this type of thing that, oh, they actually, the consumers actually want more. And they buy it not just the next year, but the year after that and the year after that. And uh, and it, it makes it hard because you can only do so many of these projects in any given time. Um, now, luckily, in the case of all of those, the work on the cigars have been done. Uh, the packaging is done. It's just a matter of executing what you did previously to the same standard or better. So th that makes it a little bit more palatable. But... It's really, it's really, really unusual to do these type of single uh, shop releases and for them to have life beyond the initial release. And in my case, every single one of them has been multi-year so far. Eventually, I'm going to fall on my face. Eventually, I'm going to make something that's going to be shitty and it's going to be an absolute disaster. But I'm going to try my best for that not to be the case. I feel like... Uh... From what I understand and from what I've seen, Dunbarton has a uh, – it, it's a following. It, it is a 
people who who graduate uh, gravitate towards Dunbarton, uh, they they under they they acknowledge, they appreciate, and they 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 hold true to the Dunbarton uh, tobacco yeah, and I, trust I hope that they're doing company. That. But I don't want them to do that out of brand loyalty. I want them to do it because I don't, I don't want fans. I want people that are just, they genuinely love the product. You know I mean? I, I feel as though it's my responsibility to earn their respect. I want, right. I, I want them to be willing patrons. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I, I don't need that. I don't, I don't, I don't need that ubiquitous fanboy. It's going to fawn. You know what I mean? I, I want them to feel as though they're really getting value for their money because I'm asking them to spend a little more money, right? None of my cigars are inexpensive. All of my cigars no. cost 2 to $3 more on average. You know what I mean? So it's my responsibility to deliver something that when they smoke, they go, okay, that's worth me spending an extra 2 to $3 retail to have that smoking experience. I, I think that there's merit in that. And so I, I think that uh, I think I think a lot of responsibility comes with that kind of uh, with that kind of uh, patronage. You you have a real obligation to try to you have to earn you have to earn their support on a continual basis. Yep. You just to do otherwise is to take it for granted, and and that's yeah, it works short term. But eventually it peters out. I mean, we all see it. We see these brands that have become uber hot over the years and they're the buzzy, buzzy brand. And where are they today? You know what I mean? They just, and I'm not going to name names because it's inappropriate for me to do so, but anybody that's been smoking cigars for the last, you know, 10, 20 years, you could probably think of four or five right off the top of your head that were like the second coming of Jesus that are now pretty much close out or non-existent. You know what I mean? And I mean, and you don't, and that's not the way you build a company. That's not the way you grow. You, you grow by making a product that's consistently solid and the consumer feels is a good value. Even if it costs more, in the end, it still has to be a value to the consumer that they feel good about giving you their money for. You have that yeah. obligation. Oh, absolutely. Well, we're, I'm, my cigar is down to a nub. Uh, in this episode, uh, we're, we're getting close. So let's close this out. <laughs> Two hours. <laughs> you know, not a big deal. It's just an hour over. Um, I've never, check, folks, check out the Bar Dunbarton. Words. <laughs> check out the Dunbarton and Trust. At DunbartonCigars.com, or shop for your uh, shop for them at your your online store, local brick and mortar. Um, Steve, uh, this is great. Uh, there, <laughs> thanks for taking the time. I appreciate it. I know you're a busy man. Oh, no, I, no, no, no. I, I appreciate you affording me the opportunity. So, um, folks. Uh, until we put, until the next time, until we put smoke in the air next time, stay smoky, stay classy, and uh, folks, stay safe out there. Um, thank you 
for listening, and we'll see you next time here at the Cigar Social Podcast.